Let's take our Bibles and let's go to the book of Judges for a study that we've been doing here the last few weeks. If you have notes, they are in the bulletin. If you would like to follow along a little bit better and don't have the notes from the bulletin, the ushers have some and they'll hand that to you as we are in the book of Judges uh, going through a series. We're up to Judges 16. Judges chapter 16. As we've gone through the book, the last time we were dealing with it, we came to the story of Samson. Samson has a lot of details given about him. He's the one that's talked about the most of all the different judges. And if I were to ask you what physical trait or characteristic stands out most about Samson, you would probably say it is his his strength. And something that's associated with his appearance beyond the strength, what else is unique about Samson? His long hair. His long hair. Now, I don't know if it's as long as this fellow in this picture. This is taken from a fellow who is in one of our local restaurants here recently. One of our folks said that he caught their attention because his hair was all the way down to the calf of his leg. Now, was Samson's hair that long? I don't know. I know that Samson's hair was growing for 40, 40 plus years before he passed away. I don't know how thick it was, but it says that there are seven different locks. His hair was long enough that it was able to be woven into the, into the tapestry, into the loom that, that Delilah was using. I don't know how heavy it was. And it kind of strikes me odd that when she says, you know, the Philistines be upon you after she cut his hair, that he didn't notice his hair was gone. Okay, it would strike me that, man, when I go outside without a cap, I know, okay, right away, that he, if I'm having a thick head of hair, all that weight, I'm surprised it didn't, it didn't catch his attention right away, but it says in Judges 16 that he got up and he walked out saying that I will do what I've done in the past, I'll take care of the Philistines. And so the, his hair is an integral part of some of this story, and yet there's bigger details. There's a whole lot of other information. Some of this information we looked at uh, the last time we had our study in Judges 16 on a Sunday evening. A number of you weren't able to be with us. I'm just going to rehearse a little bit of some of that information that if we were to lay out Samson's life and go from beginning to the end and say, okay, Samson, what do we learn about you? We don't learn about length of hair. We don't learn about a, a weightlifting program, but here's what we do learn. Even though those, his weight and his hair was, his uh, strength and his hair was uh, very involved in his ministry, here's what we learn and stands out. Number one is this. God's shared power is absolutely amazing. It is great. What God is willing to share with his children at times, giving gifts, giving abilities, giving strength, that he's able to share with them some of, some of the strength that he gave Samson was amazing. You go through the entire account of Samson and you have his unique feats of strength where he takes that lion that attacks him in the vineyard, that lion that he kills, who, who this raging lion with his very bare hands. We get the account that right after that he captures 300 foxes. Not only was he strong, he was speedy. He catches those foxes. He ties them together. He lets them loose with fire between their tails. They go through all the Philistines' fields and burn them up. We know that he has this amazing ability given by God that at one time he goes out in retaliation for what they did with his bride. He he attacks a number of Philistines and says that he smote them from hip and thigh. Doesn't give us the stats, but he is out on a one-man rampage going through and, and defeating the Philistines. After that, we hear the story about how he comes to the city of Gaza in chapter 15 as it continues on, that he's in Gaza and, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 16, the first couple verses. There he is at the city of Gaza. They lay in wait to capture him. He wakes up in the middle of the night and he walks out of the city with the gates from the city. We made the comparison that the weight of this city is like him walking into our parking lot and grabbing one of the vehicles and walking away with them like a like the truck and just carrying it away 
And here we know that from the account he goes 35 miles with that gate and it's a very hilly country. Amazing strength. The other story that shows up is when he's all of a sudden Samson defeats all those armies that he, uh, that he conquers. You know, the thousands of, tro- of the troops slays in one battle when hundreds come against him. True. God's power is great. God's shared power that he gives. God can enable people to do amazing things like he's done with you. God gives the ability to use spiritual gifts. God gives the ability to share the Word of God. God gives the ability for some of you to teach the Word of God. God gives the ability to overcome some of your past, whether it be some besetting sin or some addiction. God's power to be able to raise godly kids in an ungodly world. To overcome trials and troubles that have absolutely defeated others. To deal with some of the more horrific things in life. To have the stamina and the strength to face death and to be able to go through that. God's grace, God's shared power is absolutely amazing. And it is something that we ought to be so grateful for. But let's make another observation. God's shared power comes by grace. It's not something that Samson deserved, and it's not something that we deserve. Now, some people will tie this story of Samson and get it confused by saying, because Samson had long hair, that's why he was strong. No, his long hair was merely a physical demonstration of his dedication to the Lord. Back in those days, he took the vow of the Nazarite. The vow of the Nazarite meant that he, because he was dedicating himself to the Lord for whatever period his ended up being life, his whole life, But that period of time, somebody could take a a vow of a Nazarite and then they would stay away from the fruit of the vine, strong drink. They would change their appearance that everybody would know that they're in this period of time by letting their hair grow. They would not touch a dead animal or dead carcass, which, by the way, those were very normal in their everyday life. In everyday life back in that region for the Jews, they would be involved with the fruit of the vine. That was their daily drink. They would be involved with keeping in their hygiene, their hair cut short because of all the the dirt, because of all the other complications. They would be involved with dealing with dead animals and even if family members passed away, they would have to take care of that. But the Nazarite would indicate that I am one who's dedicated to the Lord, that I'm so focused on the things of the Lord. It'd be like you when you do your praying and fasting, that you put aside some of the normal routines of the day, whether it be the food, whether it be the sleep. And so the Bible says that the vow of the Nazarite would be an individual who wouldn't take care of their hair like they normally would. And so it was tied to his strength because it was a symbol of his dedication, not because it was the source of the strength. And as a result, he's, he's got this strength, not because of his long hair, but because he's dedicated, God poured out his spirit upon him. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, that the spirit rushed upon Samson on, uh, uh, on several occasions so that he was able to do these, fa- these magnificent feats. The spirit of God only came by the grace of God only came upon certain individuals in that day for a certain period of time, and it's all by grace. The same way that the Spirit of God, because of God's grace to us in this day and age that we live in, in this dispensation, as Ephesians 1 calls it, this time period that we understand in the New Testament era, God graces us 
with giving us salvation, a relationship with him. He graces us with his spirit living within us on a permanent basis. It's all by grace. It's not what we deserve. It's not what we have done. We are saved by grace. We can pray because of grace. We can worship and understand the Bible because of grace of God. We have our Bibles in our lap. Why? Because of grace. God's shared power is a result of God's grace, God's goodness, God's kindness to us. So we have two statements so far. We said God's shared power can be great. God's shared power comes by grace. But as we look at the life of Samson, it is so clear that this is the biggest picture that comes out from him. God's shared power can be lost. That blessing upon, upon the life, the, the pouring out of God's spirit to be able to do phenomenal things, to be able to minister, and Samson needed that. He had the opportunity, the appointment by God to be a judge, to be a leader, to bring the people to revival, to have the people come from underneath the oppressions of the Philistines who were marauding through their life and their land at that time. And God says, I'm going to use you, Samson, but Samson lost that usefulness. He, even though God had blessed him abundantly, God had graced him with some 20 years of ministry, all of a sudden he loses it all. It shows up with that loss is tremendous. When in chapter 16, I think it's the saddest phrase in, in this entire book, where we read in verse 20 this comment. So Delilah wakes him up and she says, Samson, the Philistines be upon you. And he wakes up and he makes this comment. He awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. I'll defeat those Philistines who are lying in wait to capture me. I'll go out there and they won't be able to threaten me. And the next verse goes on. And by the way, his hair has been cut at this moment. How do you not know your hair has been cut? How do you not know your symbol, your sign of dedication is gone and it's off your head? But worse than that was his emptiness, his blindness, his ignorance to this fact. Look at the rest of verse 20 where it says, he did not know that the spirit of the Lord had departed from him. Here he is in the midst of, of a conflict, in the midst of trouble, and he doesn't even realize that the Spirit of the Lord had departed, that God's blessings have left his life. Can you imagine Samson not realizing that? It would be like somebody coming today into a worship service, going through the worship, singing the songs, standing up, sitting down, putting something in the plate, and not realizing that it's pure motion. That the Spirit of God is not blessing their life. That the Spirit of God is not empowering them because they, on other days of the week, are living a life that is not dedicated to the Lord. And they wist not. They don't realize that the Spirit of the Lord is not close to them, is not leading them, is not controlling them, is not filling them. And therefore, they don't have the same access in prayer. They don't have that same abilities and strengthenings and, and guidance by the Spirit of God. It would be like a church coming and doing praise and doing worship and going through the motions, but the Spirit of the Lord, He is Ichabod, He has left which happened to the Jews in the Old Testament. That's the, that's the story that we read and what happens in the next few generations is that the Spirit of God leaves even the temple and they go through the motions of worship. But God's blessings have left the nation. God's blessings had left Samson. And Samson was a real-life illustration to the peoples of that culture and of that age and the following ages to realize, wait a minute, there can come a place in my life where the blessings of God have left and I've got to be careful that, one, I am in tune with the Lord, that I realize 
that God, God has put me on the shelf, that God has put me in a place of chastisement or discipline or trying to correct something in my life. Now look at Samson. In his life, when he fell, man, he fell a long way. Go to chapter 16. Watch what we read. As we read some of the account, it talks about the Philistines be upon him. He woke up out of his sleep. I'll go out as other times. He wist not the spirit of the Lord was departed. But watch verse 21. The Philistines took him, put out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza, one of their five chief cities, and bound him with fetters of brass, and he did grind in the prison house. And then it goes on. And it talks more about what happened to him. Wait a minute, here it is. The strongest man that ever was is beaten by a woman, by a featherweight of a woman, who all of a sudden deceived him and tricked him, and he played into her luring and her attractions, her lusts, and he's defeated the people that he was to be opposing and bringing freedom to the Israelites from the Philistines. They now have captured him. He is a slave to them. They are the ones who, this strong man, this strength that he beat by the hundreds, now he's as weak as any other man. He's unable to resist the enemies of God. He's an individual who loses his sight. Isn't it ironic? This man was given to looking and looking and looking and looking. He lived his life the last few years of looking here, looking there, looking at this woman, looking at that woman, looking at that woman. And he was drawn by his visual enthusiasm and lust. Now he loses his very sight. There he is. He's grinding in a mill. He has lost his freedom. This man who was one of those, those individuals who was in the wilderness. He was walking, as we read about in chapters 13, 14, 15. Given to battling the lions. Given to living in the wilderness. Living in the mountain when the Jews come to him and say, hey, Listen, the Philistines are giving us a hard time. They have to come up to a mountain to see him. He's a wilderness guy. Now he's in a cellar. He's grinding like an oxen would grind. He's grinding, doing the work of an animal. Unable to, unable to resist, unable to free himself for an extended period of time. And then it comes to a spot. As you read the rest of the account of where this man falls, it says the lords of the Philistines, in verse 23, gathered themselves together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god. They're going to they're have a feast day to their false deity. And they said, Our God has delivered Samson, and our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. And they said, Our God has delivered into our hands our enemy and destroy of our country, which slew many of us. And it came to pass, when the hearts were merry, that they said, Hey, bring Samson out, that he may make us sport, that we may mock him, that he may entertain us. And they called out Samson from the prison house. They made him sport of him. They set him between the pillars. And Samson now is entertainment. He's the, the animal act for the Philistines. Man, has he come down low. Can you imagine what it's been like? That he hears the ranting and the chanting and all the jeering that's going on. That the God that gave him strength, the God that he was to exalt, the God that he was to call his own people to become revived with, they are saying that that God is beaten. Our God, Dagon, is the most powerful. Our God, Dagon, has taken out our enemy. He has embarrassed himself. He has embarrassed his, the people of God. He has embarrassed the God Almighty. How far has he fallen? And his people. That he was to free. They're still under the bondage of the Philistines, which will last all the way up until David comes on the scene. The guy really fell flat. Can you imagine what he felt like for all that period of time? That when he's in bondage, can you imagine as he's grinding in the mill? 
going day after day through this labor that he can't see anything, but his mind can be going fast as he's just pushing this huge grindstone around and around. And I wonder how many times he's saying, oh, I wish I hadn't. Oh, I wish I had another, another chance. If I could only go back and undo it. And there he is, just like an oxen, day after day after day after day. How the mighty have fallen. There's Samson, there that he is now captured and he is shamed. Why did he do that? What, what was it in his life that brought him down that low? Oh, there's several things that we highlighted a couple weeks ago. He had shown in his life he was persistent in getting his own way. He developed an attitude that whatever I want, if I want it, it's okay. It doesn't make any difference if it's against the word of God, if it's against the counsel of my godly parents. If I want it, it's mine. Very persistent in having his own way. We pointed out a couple weeks ago that he was just driven by passions. Where all of a sudden it's, she looks good, and she looks good, and she looks good. And his passions are just dominating his life. This he-man with a she-weakness. This man who is just totally dominated. Though he's so strong that nobody could stop him when they came with, with hundreds of men. They couldn't, they couldn't defeat him. He walked away with their city gate. And yet he couldn't control his own passions. His own desires. We have the idea that in his prayer life, which there's only two prayers recorded, one in chapter 16, one in chapter 15, we looked at him how he's so pathetic in his prayer life. That in chapter 15, when he has that opportunity after he killed a thousand, he is focused on himself during that prayer time. Oh God, how, uh, how come you don't give me water? I'm going to die here. Very irreverent, disrespectful. In fact, even though in the prayer that he prays openly, he says, you have given me this great victory. Right before that, he's making the statement, I have slain the thousands. Look at what I have done. But then when he prays, he prays the ritual prayer. He prays the proper way of giving God the glory but it's not there in sincerity. He's an individual who is all about, about God's call in his life being very passive. In fact, he's playful with the calling of God's life. You're not supposed to touch a dead animal. But that, remember the time he's visiting again when he's headed back for his wedding with the Philistine woman? As he goes back, he sees the carcass of the lion that he killed. He kneels down and he reaches in because he sees bees around it. And he's toying with that carcass and he's pulling out the honey. He wasn't supposed to touch a dead animal. But he's getting food out of it, and then he shares it with his parents and never tells them that it comes from a carcass, making them unclean as well. He's an individual who's not supposed to touch the strong drink. He's not supposed to stay away from the wine, but he is hosting drinking parties. What's he doing there? He's visiting vineyards. What's he doing there? He's getting to the very edge. He's an individual who, all, who toys with this secret of dedication. You know, that I'm dedicated to the Lord. I have my long hair. It's a sign of my dedication. And he tells her, if you cut my hair, you know, then I'll lose my strength because it's a symbol that I've no, I'm no longer dedicated. Here's an individual who God had said certain standards, stay away from, avoid. And he was getting ever so close, dabbling in it. I wonder if he fell far. Because of his toying with that which was, which was wrong. Puts himself in bad situations. This guy is supposed to be opposing the Philistines. But you read time and time again. He's partying with them. He's visiting them. He's betting with them. He is sharing with them. He is gambling with them. 
He stays in Delilah's tent when she has tricked him several times and tried all the things that he said. If you tie me with cat gut, if you put brand new ropes on me, if you weave my hair in a loom. And she has soldiers there and says, Samson, they be upon you. You would think after the first time he would catch on that she's not good for him. But he never leaves. She goes all the way through number four where she finally captures him. Keeps on putting himself in his bad spots. But I think this is the worst one. This is the ultimate. That all of a sudden he's become a proud individual. When he first killed the lion, he wouldn't tell anybody. It was a secret because he wasn't pompous and arrogant. But then as time went by, look at the thousand I have slain. And then as time goes by, he makes this statement to Delilah several times. I'm going to get up and I'm going to beat the Philistines. I'm going to get up and beat the Philistines. I'm going to get up and beat the Philistines. His overconfidence, his pride in his own ability, even after his hair is cut, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do what's happened at other times, presuming that God will continue to bless him because he's the judge. Presuming that God has to bless us Because we're his children. We go to church. We carry a Bible. We sing the hymns. We gather at communion. But then when we're away from this moment, what about the holiness on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? What about the dedication? What about the prayer life? What about the separation from which God has said we should stay away from certain things that are in the world? What about the idea of having your way versus God's way? What about playing to the passions? And then we come and say, well, God has to bless me because I am who I am. How the mighty fall. Take heed, lest he that thinks he stands, lest he fall. Be careful. The mighty fall down like Samson. The warning is that that's the, that's the story. To warn us to avoid, to avoid, to avoid those things that can ensnare, trap, and destroy our testimony and embarrass ourselves, but most importantly, embarrass God and, and prevent us from doing what God wants us to do, being a witness, being a testimony, being an individual who makes an impact, being one who raises godly kids, not just raising kids, but raising godly kids. Those are important tasks. God's grace enables us to do some mighty things. God's shared power is coming by grace. God's shared power is absolutely amazing. But God's power can be lost, but let's not stop with that. Let's finish out his story. God's shared power that has been lost can be restored. As far as Samson fell, and I don't understand how God in his grace forgives Samson the way he does, but I am thankful that he does. That here he is, where sin abounded, grace much more. As we sang about grace this morning, as we focused on how wonderful, almighty our God is, how gracious he was to Samson. In the story you have that God takes Samson, who is in the midst of this pit. He is grinding. He is a slave. He is blinded. And all of a sudden we read a couple lines that are absolutely phenomenal. Lines that you read down like in verse 27 of chapter 16, or 22, verse 22, excuse me. Uh, you've, a lot of you joked with me about the title, but look at, here's the context. Howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaved. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That his hair, now what, what I strike, now a couple of goofy thoughts come to my mind. If the Philistines 
superstitiously thought that his hair was the source of his power, the hair alone, what would you have done if you were a Philistine? Keep him bald. Put nair on his head every day. <laughs> right? They didn't. They didn't do that. Again, I remind you, his hair was not the source, but a symbol of dedication. And in his case, God allows the hair to grow out. And is there a dedication? Is there a renewal? You read in verse 30, he bows himself with all of his might, and the house of the fell upon the lords and upon all the people therein. And he says, so that when he died, he slew more than he Luna's life. Understand, they have uncovered Philistine type of, of structures, public structures. And typically there'd be two large pillars in the middle holding up the roof area, or like our, we would call our balcony area, but they're like 30 feet in the air. Down below is where the, the celebrities, the lords, all those individuals would be. And up on top would be where the people are, and they'd be on the ramparts roundabout as this structure had an elevated center, and then it tapered down, is from what we find from archaeological findings. And so he goes in there. God restores his strength so he can push the pillars apart, and the entire, he brings down the house upon all the individuals. It was such a devastating loss for the Philistines. They lost their president, vice president, that would be the five lords. They lost the entire cabinet. They lost Congress. They lost the entire military head of the Pentagon. They lose the, the, the moving part of their operation. God restored the strength and brings him back to that spot where all of a sudden he ends up in victory. What lessons do we draw from coming back and experiencing victory after such a terrible, terrible fall? Here's the three that strike me. The three lessons on forgiveness. The three lessons on restoration. Number one is this. Samson's restoration or forgiveness, whatever you want to call it, was available when he genuinely repented. As we look at the text, is there proof or indication that he genuinely repented? I think so. I think that there's a change in his behavior, in his conduct, in his attitude that shows something very drastic happened in his heart. In that time that he's in the mill, God is dealing with him and he comes to a place of real repentance. How do I figure that? Well, a couple different things. In chapter 15 and in chapter 16, he's been de very, very demonstrative in saying, look at me, look at my strength. I have slain the thousands, and as well, he goes out, he says, as I've done before, I'll go out and beat the Philistines. Very self-confident. Very much relying on his own ability, his own power, his own strength, what he has done, taking it for granted, presuming upon God. However, watch about a change that happens in his attitude. Verse 28, his second prayer. Samson calls on the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me. I pray you, please, 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 you strengthen me, I pray thee, this one time, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my eyes. This is a moment that indicates he's got a change of spirit, change of attitude. He is calling out and saying, God, it's you. The strength isn't my own efforts. The strength isn't my own weightlifting. The strength hasn't been my own abilities that I'm relying upon. God... I need you to strengthen me. My strength came from and can only come from you. He's come to a realization 
that here as the servant, he is totally dependent upon the master. There is nothing he can do. He has come to that point where he is swallowed hook, line, and sinker in a good way. The words of the master, the maker that says, without me you can do. That's where Samson has come. He's come a long way since when he was pompous and arrogant. These months, or whatever it be, a year or two years, whatever it is, that he is in that grinding mill, God has got a hold of his heart. There's been a real change of attitude before God Almighty. Not only that, but now he has a change of purpose. His change of motivation. Here's the man who for a long time, he knew he had a position to be a judge. He knew he was to oppose the Philistines, but he was always playing games with them. He was always associating with them. He was always goofing off with them. In fact, the times that he attacked the Philistines was when he suffered his own personal loss. And here he comes to a point where he's fully realizing his purpose in life. It's not about fulfilling his passion. It's not about having fun and sex with those Philistine ladies, which has so dominated him for all these years. Now he says, my real purpose in life is to have been used by God and should have been used by God to try to bring freedom to my people to oppose the influence of the Philistines. And so he comes to a spot where he says in verse 30, he makes it very clear, let me die with the Philistines. I want, I want, to, I want to wreak havoc amongst them because this is what you have called me to do. And I'm going to martyr my life. This isn't a suicide, this is a martyrdom. That all of a sudden he says, even if it costs me my life, let me this one time do an act that will help do what I have been called to, what my purpose of living is. To be a testimony, to be an influence, to be a freedom fighter for the Jews. Let me do that. Your purposes now are what are motivating me to do what you want, not the way I wanted to act. He doesn't say, oh God, give me back my sight. Oh God, let me have a few more moments of fleeting pleasure. He's dropped that. It's all gone. It's been stripped from his life. He is now at a moment where he is saying, God, it's you. It's you strengthening and it's your will. It's you being in control. And maybe it's because he realized he had only short time to live that all of a sudden he changed his purpose. But I know this, he's a guy with new priorities. <laughs> Talking about short time, there was a preacher just preaching not too long ago in this community that as he was speaking, two guys were sitting in the church service. These two guys were, were sharing their story here last week. I was hearing about it. The one guy's sitting in the service, or, the, or I'm sorry, the two guys are, are doing their business, and they're talking, and the one guy asks, how'd your week go? He said, oh, I've had a terrible, terrible week. Really? What happened? He says, well, it's just been really awful. You know, it's a lot of problems at home, and it's all the preacher's fault. He says, well, how's the preacher's fault? He says, oh, it's because the preacher, that my wife got so mad at me. What happened? He says, we were at church. And the preacher is preaching about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he's, he's preaching, he's saying, hey, if you knew the Lord is returning within two weeks, what would you do different? Would you change your priorities? And to prove the point and to strike it a little bit further, the preacher started calling on people in the congregation, calling one fellow sitting over there, and he says, hey, you, Mr. Brown. He said, if you had two weeks left before the Lord returned, would you do something different? The guy thought for a second and said, sure I would. 
He said, I would, I would just stop working, stop doing it. I'd get all the tracks out of the track rack, and I'd go around the community and try to lead as many people to the Lord as possible over those next two weeks. Ah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Preacher went over to this side. He says, hey, you, Mr. Smith, what would you do different? And he said, well, that guy stood up, and that guy shared how if he knew he had two weeks, he'd go and sell everything, absolutely sell everything, give it to the poor, make sure it's given to missions so that he didn't have any things to his account, but it was all invested in the Lord's work. That's pretty good. And then the preacher had the audacity, the man went on to say, he called on me. And he says, if you had two weeks, what would you do different? He says, I sat there thinking real seriously, would I change my life? Would I change my life? And I finally said, yeah, I would. I have an idea what I would do differently. I'd go and live with my mother-in-law. And the preacher and everybody kind of looked, you know, what do you mean you'd go and live with your mother-in-law? He said, because it would be the longest two weeks in my entire life. <laughs> he said, everybody kind of giggled and chuckled except for my wife. My wife looked at me, stared at me, and so then what happened? He said, well, she really let me have it when we got home. And I didn't see her for four days. Really? Did she leave? No, the swelling took four days to go down before I could see again. The guy, in a jesting way, was trying to say, you know, when we have challenges in our life, there's moments where we would change priorities. Samson fits, hits a brick wall. He's in trouble, and his priorities change drastically. All of a sudden, he's realizing, maybe it's because he's realizing this is going to be the end, but he's turned to the Lord. And by the way, let me add this. Does God accept foxhole conversions? That's grace. That's grace, is it not? Should we wait until that moment? Oh, you're a fool. You're a fool, and I'd be a fool to wait until the very last moment to repent. But this is Samson's moment. He does repent. He calls upon the Lord, and as a result, he is, he is blessed with an opportunity. But I want you to catch this. When we talk about forgiveness and restoration, there's another really important truth that you and I have to remember. Samson's restoration did not remove all of sin's consequences. Yes, his hair grew back. That is a fact. And I'm glad that in a spiritual sense, our hair can grow back. That is, we can be rededicated to the Lord and he can use us once again. That is the phenomenal blessing. However, not everything was, was put back in place. He still remains blind. He's lost his sight. His sight is not restored. There is the reality that even though we can be forgiven, it doesn't remove all the consequences. It doesn't remove all the payday someday. It doesn't take away some of the illness we may have, may have introduced into our bodies. It doesn't take away some of the conflicts that we have introduced between us and others in our sinful choices. It doesn't restore and take away some of the indebtedness that now we're in trouble with. Consequences can still remain. They can still be a problem. There was a true story about several years ago that the British fleet was out in one of their maneuvers. And as they were doing the maneuvers, they were all lined up, and the admiral in charge, he was giving maneuver, maneuver signals from his lead ship, and they were supposed to follow in certain patterns and do certain things based upon his signaling from his lead ship. And he signaled that everybody was supposed to do a 90-degree turn at a certain moment. 
the captain of one of the ships wasn't paying attention and missed the signal. And all of a sudden, ships started turning, and he didn't know which way he was to turn and what to do, and he almost created an at-sea accident. They finally got everything worked out and got everybody back, and the admiral radios the captain of that ship that had kind of followed up the entire maneuver, and he radioed back and he asked him this question, Captain, what are your intentions? The captain knew that he had made a flaw, a fatal flaw, a mistake in not being aware. And he says, sir, I'm buying a farm. He knew he was going to be landlocked. That all of a sudden, because he made a major mistake, that happens. There are moments, according to Hebrews chapter 12, that we can repent, but we may not be restored fully to our physical standings that we had before. It could happen with a job loss. You repent because you've done something wrong at work. You repent about it, and, and you, may, you may not get that job back. You repent and say, okay, um, I, I'm really sorry, Mom and Dad, because I've been lying to you, I've been cheating, and you may not get their trust back for a period of time. That's on you. That is a reality of forgiveness and repentance. It is this that is available but it doesn't take away everything, but here's the beauty and the greatest part about it all. That what we have is this fact, that restoration, forgiveness, does restore favorable standing with God. The fellowship is restored. The relationship is renewed. Here Samson prays to the Lord. He isn't given his sight back, but he is given back an opportunity to serve. It's not as big and drastic as it could have been, but he's given an opportunity. Here he is, a son who has walked away from his heavenly father, restored like the prodigal is restored. That's the beauty of this grace. The beauty is that all of a sudden God can hear us when we repent. The beauty is that God gave him back the strength for a moment of, of ministry, of opportunity. God even commends Samson... Because at this moment, God uses him in a great way. We read in the book of Hebrews, the chapter where we call it the Hall of Faith, Bible fame characters. We read in Hebrews 11, what more shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, and of Samson. He's included as one of the heroic figures. Why? Because at the end, he repents. He's restored to a place of limited usefulness, but usefulness. And God uses him in a mighty way. You know what the beauty of it is? If and when we repent, God doesn't hold our past against us. Dwell upon it. Think about it. You don't have to fear going to heaven and standing before the Lord. And God holding your past against you if you repent. If we call upon the Lord, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when he forgives us, he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you. Your sins and your iniquities will I remember. That's grace. That's mercy. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Bottom line is this, we all struggle. We all battle. Now, our falls and our stumbles aren't the same as Samson's. They aren't identical. Now, some may have some parallels, 
But here's the reality. If God can forgive somebody like Samson, then truly he can give us hope and help. If God is able to restore a Samson to a moment of usefulness, to bring him to a place where he has a good relationship with the Father, that God can commend him and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Then there's hope for you and me. What do we do? How do we make sure that we have that rightness with God? What do we do this morning? Where do we start? Number one is you admit. You admit before God Almighty that that determination to do what you want is sin in His sight. You admit playing to the passions is sin and offensive to Him. You have to admit that the, the pathetic prayer life is wrong. You have to admit that putting yourself in bad situations is stupid and foolish and violates the word of God. You have to admit to him that that you don't want to be a proud person, that you don't presume upon him. You have to admit that those things are wrong, that the attitudes and the actions are offensive in his sight, and for that, please forgive me. Please pour out your grace upon me because I don't deserve to be forgiven, but please forgive me. You need to then accept his forgiveness. That is, believe that when he says your sins and your iniquities will I remember no more, he means it. When he says that if you confess, I will forgive, he means it. And genuinely call upon him and believe that he has forgiven you. You say, but I did it again. I've done it so many times. Believe that if he can forgive a Samson of a lifetime of passions that were illicit, he can forgive you and restore you to a point where he can bless you again. Believe. Accept his forgiveness. Then you need to allow God to change you, to control you, to say, God, I'm yours. Whatever you can, however you can use me, here, God, I'm yours. This is repentance. It's yieldedness. It's surrender. It's not doing my own thing. It's doing your thing. You need to allow him to change your life. Now, by the way, this starts for some who may have never even started the baby steps of coming to the Lord. It starts by being born again, by accepting God's definition of you and me, that we are all sinners, that none of us deserve to go to heaven, and that the wages of our sin is death, But Jesus Christ came into this earth to provide us forgiveness, to seek and to save that which was lost. That he came to provide us eternal life, total forgiveness, access to God Almighty, to put forgiveness there on the table so that we could accept it. By giving his life, giving his body, giving his his whole self, which was totally innocent and pure and holy, and taking our sin penalty upon himself. And yelling out to the Father, I have taken it, my God, why have you forsaken me? Taking my sin and yours upon him. And offering to us total, complete forgiveness and a hope to be in heaven. So you and I need to start. The baby step is we come before God and we call upon him and say, please make me a part of your family. Forgive me. Let me be born again. Let me become your child by accepting your gift of eternal life. Birth me anew spiritually. That happens. You call upon Christ. 
You move forward and you have moments like Samson. You call upon Christ and say, forgive me again. Forgive me again and believe that he will because of his grace. He doesn't condone us to go out and sin. What shall we sin because grace abounds? God forbid, Paul writes. But it happens. And we come and we say, oh God, please forgive me. We admit it. We accept it. We allow him to take control and we attempt to serve the Lord again. We attempt to do something for the Lord again. We don't sit back and say, oh well, I'm useless. We attempt to serve the Lord again. We attempt to be a witness. We attempt to train right. We attempt to serve, to teach, to minister. I'm going to add one more because we are sitting on the, on the moments right before communion where the communion is the most important service we could celebrate in a month, the one commanded that we do periodically, the one that if we come without a clean heart, without a proper relationship, we would bring to ourselves destruction if we take this unworthily. But we come to communion with the idea that we need to appreciate. We need to celebrate. We need to be thankful for His grace, His mercy, that He will pour out anew upon us. It's an amazing grace. You, you all know. John Newton was the one that wrote the song, Amazing Grace. You know this. But he wrote something else that I think is very profound, talking about you and me and himself. He was asked this question, you know, I'm sure there are wonders in heaven when I get there that will amaze us, will absolutely amaze me when I get there. He said, I think there's three of them that I'll be most amazed when I get into heaven. One is this, the number of folk who will be there that I don't expect to see. They're going to be there though. Number two, he said, that amazes me, that I think is going to amaze me and I'll be wondering about in eternity is this. There will be a number of folk that I expect to see, but I won't see them because they rejected grace. But then he made this comment that I think is most profound. But the greatest wonder will be this, that I'm there. It's amazing grace. It's amazing grace that God would save a wretch like me, like you. That's what we celebrate this morning. 